All right, everybody. Good morning. How are you? Awesome. Awesome. That's great. I'm so glad that you are here today. As I said earlier, we've been praying for you. We don't just say that. We actually legitimately, honest to goodness, have been praying for you uh, because we know that the Spirit is up to powerful things that we don't necessarily get to understand, that we... Uh, just go along for the ride, right? And so we, we pray during the week that, that uh, those of you that will make your way here this weekend, that if there's any challenges to that, that roadblocks will be removed. We pray that uh, the message that we're here to share with you is one that speaks to your heart. So when I say that we have been praying for you, those are not just empty words. We have been praying for you. And uh, so we are so blessed and, and honored that you are spending this morning with us. So thank you. Um, again, my name is Amanda Neppel, and I'm the discipleship director here. And we have been finishing up well, the last few weeks we've been doing a sermon series called Holy Days in May. And so we've talked about the gifts of the Spirit. We've talked about uh, the way the Trinity, Father, God, Holy Spirit, the three in one. We've tried to kind of talk about ways that the Spirit moves. And so the goal today is kind of to bring some of those ideas together. That's the goal. And uh, we'll see where we end up at the end. And so thank you for going along for the ride. Um, if you have your Bibles today, please go ahead and open them up. We're going to start out in John chapter 13, actually, which is a few chapters or earlier than what we heard read this morning. If you don't have a Bible, go grab one. If you have your Bible app on your phone, by all means, go ahead and pull that up. Since I gave you um, encouragement to do that, then the win is that when I look out and see you on your phone, then I assume that you're on your Bible, and it's a win-win for everyone in that way. So uh, yeah, that'll be great. Go ahead and, and do that. John chapter 13. The reason we're starting in 13 is because there is so much happening in John chapter 15 and the reading that you heard earlier today. And we can listen to that reading, and, and it's wonderful and true, and it's a beautiful word. And I think if we really want to understand what Jesus is talking about to the disciples there in uh, the words that we heard in chapter 15, it's going to help us a lot to back up a little bit and start in John 13. The end of this part of John, starting in John chapter 13, Jesus and the disciples are... Uh, well, they're, they're gathered in the upper room that night, the night that they're going to celebrate Passover, and it really kind of begins this whole discourse then that Jesus gives to the disciples. Jesus knows that he only has a few hours left. The disciples, of course, don't realize that yet, but Jesus knows that he just has a few hours to teach them things that he has that he wants them to know. And so he begins in chapter 13, and uh, this is where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. That's the first thing that Jesus does when they gather in the room, is he washes their feet. And after he does that, he says in John chapter 15, that now the disciples have been shown an example. And he says, I've given you this example, now go out and do as I have done for you. In the very next verse, Jesus says in 13, 16, that slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the one who delivers the message greater than the one who sends it. So if you remember the Bible reading, it sounds a little familiar, right? And so in chapter 15, a lot of what Jesus is doing is he's expanding on some of these concepts and ideas that he began just a couple chapters earlier in 13. Uh, if you are a parent or an educator or any sort of a leader or you've tried to uh, convince a person of something new, you know that usually just one time of saying something doesn't quite get the point across, right? You usually have to repeat yourself, sometimes ad nauseum. You have to say things over and over. If you're trying to teach something that's radically new, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's laying the foundation to teach them something radically new. 
And so he has to repeat himself, I imagine, a few times in this discourse for the disciples to really get what's going on. At the end of chapter 13, in verse 34, Jesus then ends that section by giving his disciples a new commandment. He says, love one another just as, as I have loved you. Again, that's how he ends 15 as well. So this is obviously a teaching that is important to Jesus that he really wants to get across. We have chapter 13, and then we move on to chapter 14. Chapter 14 is where Jesus teaches, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is continuing to talk to the disciples. He tells them that he's going ahead of them to prepare a place for them. And he says, you know the way to where I am going. And I can only imagine the disciples in the room that night looking at each other saying, I don't even know what the heck he's talking about, let alone do I know how to, the way to where he is going. And Jesus says, yeah, if you know me, then you know the way because the Father and I are one. So Jesus delivers this teaching on the way, the truth, and the life that he and the Father are one. And then he ends John chapter 14 by talking about one that he is going to send. Because, because like we said, Jesus and God, are, are, they're doing something new. Something very new is about to happen. Something that the world has never seen before or could never have imagined. Something very new is about to happen. And so when something new happens, the creation of the world, when Jesus was baptized, when something new happens, the Holy Spirit shows up. And the Holy Spirit's involved in that. Then moving on, John chapter 15 opens with Jesus talking about the vine and the branches. And Jesus reminds them that, that he is the vine, that we are the branches, that the Father is the gardener, and that it's the Father's desire that each one of us would bear fruit. It's the Father's desire that the disciples sitting there, and then we can apply this directly to ourselves, that we would bear fruit. That's the Father's will that that would happen. And so the obvious question is, okay, bear fruit. Well, what does that mean? What kind of fruit? And if we look at what John is saying in his gospel in chapters 13 and 14 and 15 and going on to, into 16, it's clear from what John is saying in his gospel that the fruit that Jesus wants us to bear is to love one another. Okay? Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Okay, so next question then is, how did Jesus love? And the answer to that, from what we've seen here, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, we know that Jesus is on his way to the cross. The way that Jesus loved is sacrificially, right? Putting others above himself. Okay, all right. How are we really supposed to be able to love sacrificially? Because we know ourselves. We know how hard that is for people that we like, let alone for people that we don't like. We know ourselves. And so Jesus tells us in chapter 15, Jesus says it four times in one chapter, so we should probably pay attention. Verses 4, 5, 7, and 10, Jesus says, abide in me. Abide in me or remain in me, depending on what your translation says. Okay, we're getting closer, but still... There's a challenge for, there, for us in there, right? How are we supposed to know how to abide in Jesus? How are we supposed to know how to remain in Jesus? And this is how John's gospel is really cool when you dig into it and start taking a look at it. In 13 and 15, Jesus, chapters 13 and 15, Jesus is giving this incredibly challenging teaching on loving one another just as he has loved us. But layered in there 
in chapters 14 and 16, Jesus is talking about one who will come who is a helper, who is an advocate. Okay, so hang on to that thought. Jesus has given this teaching about loving one another before. This isn't new. He talked about this before he got to the upper room. Someone asked him, you know, Jesus, brass tacks, what do I have to do to get into heaven? And Jesus said, well, here are the commandments. I can sum them up in two. The first one is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that uh, earlier in, in the Gospels. And then we know that somebody is getting a little bit, uh, is, this is kind of love your neighbor as yourself. What do you possibly mean by that? So Jesus, when you talk about my neighbor, can we get real specific? Can we talk exactly about what kind of a geographical area we might actually be talking about here? Who exactly is my neighbor? And Jesus says, yes, you have this idea of who your neighbor is, but I'm here to completely blow that out of the water because your neighbor is actually anyone. Your neighbor includes people who you perceive to be your enemies. That's what's happening in the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Jesus tells that parable to help people understand that when he talks about loving your neighbor, he's actually talking about everybody, including people who you don't actually like. So Jesus has given that teaching before. But here in the upper room that night, now he has washed the disciples' feet. Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, he is preparing to go to the cross for people who love him and accept him, and he's preparing to go to the cross for people who hate him. And he's preparing to go to the cross for people who aren't even born yet, for some who will accept him, and for plenty who will reject him. Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. So Jesus has a very good understanding of what it is that he actually means by saying, love one another as I have loved you. Now we hear that and we know, I don't, I don't know that I can love like that. And Jesus says, I understand that. I know that. And that's why you are receiving this helper. That's why chapters 14 and 16 are layered in with chapters 13 and 15 because the advocate is coming. A helper is coming. We don't necessarily understand the way the Holy Spirit works, but we also know that Jesus calls us to love in a way that we don't understand either. And so in order to be able to love in a way that we cannot understand, we need a helper that we can't understand. And so that's what Jesus is talking about in chapters 14 and again later in chapters 16. Chapter 14, verse 26 and 27. But when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. He will teach you and he will remind you Verse 27, I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart, and the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So do not be troubled or afraid. Other versions will say there in that, that last part of verse 27, do not let your hearts be troubled because Jesus brings a peace, a gift that the world cannot give through this Holy Spirit who teaches us and reminds us. Uh, chapter 16, verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. And all that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said, 
the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. So the Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Spirit is there to remind us, to teach us, to guide us in this abiding and remaining that Jesus has been talking about in chapters 13 and 15. It's all layered in there. It all makes sense together. When we take the Holy Spirit out of that teaching, it makes considerably less sense to us. I think that outside of a few traditions, there are pastors and folks in the church who are really church who are really just afraid to talk about the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if part of that is because our language for that, our understanding of that is just so limited. Like when we think of the Holy Spirit, a lot of times it's represented with a dove, and that comes from the fact that when Jesus, after his baptism, he came up out of the water, and the Bible says that the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And so we kind of draw on that, that imagery. But our, our words, our language, and our, and our imagery don't quite fit the bill because we want the Holy Spirit in here with us. We know the Holy Spirit is here with us, but yet we really don't want a bird flying around the room, right? I mean, depending on how the sermon's going, I don't know. We may have a different opinion. But generally speaking, a bird flying around the room would not be what we would actually want. But we just have a hard time with our language and what, our, what we are able to actually comprehend about who the Spirit is. And so we have questions, and we try to figure these things out. And, and to a certain extent, that's fine. But I think we also have to ask ourselves, why do we think that, that we should get to understand what the Spirit is up to? Why do we think that we should be able to understand these things that God is doing? Jesus said the messenger is not greater than the one who sends the message. This Trinitarian nature of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit is so much bigger than any of us, and that's a very good thing for several reasons, and for one of the reasons that we're talking about here today is because this way that Jesus asks us to love, to abide in him, is certainly beyond our understanding. We need a spirit who is so much bigger, a God who is so much bigger than we are to allow us to, to abide, to allow us to rest. Without, um, without the spirit working in and through those things, it becomes things that we have to do and not things that we get to do. And we know how far we are from that. We know how far we are. Um, a couple times a month when, when you come into service, we'll go through the order of confession, right? And we'll do the words of confession. And it's not that we're taking a poll when y'all come in. We're not saying, so how, how are your sins this week? But we say... We say, Father, we have sinned against you. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved you in thought, word, and deed. And we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're not doing an email campaign to find out what everybody's up to. We just know it because we know that without the Spirit's help, we are incapable of doing those things that Jesus has asked us to do. And that's okay because it reminds us of how we need Jesus. It reminds us that we need the Spirit's work in our life because without that, we can't cannot love sacrificially. It's really unfortunate that we are afraid to talk about the Spirit in that way because, like I said, when we remove the Spirit, if we take chapters 14 and 16 and that teaching about the Spirit, the teaching about the Advocate who guides us, who teaches us, who reminds us, who helps us, if we take all of that out of there, then what we're left with in chapters 13 and 15 is a command to love one another in a way that we cannot love, we're left with a command to abide in a way that we are not able to do. When we take the spirit out of that, then it all becomes on us. It all becomes works. It all becomes earning our salvation when we take the spirit out of that teaching. 
Um, there's a uh, when I was preparing for my sermon this week, I was looking, obviously, at the sections um, that we're reading today, and um, uh, John chapter 15, verse 13, is certainly one of those verses that when you take the spirit out of it, it can certainly do more harm than good. That verse says that there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Amen. How true is that? And when there is someone who has served in the military and they've lost their life, that particular verse, no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends, that verse brings considerable, considerable comfort and considerable peace in that time. And that's an appropriate use of that. But I learned uh, when I was preparing this week that around the First and Second World Wars, that verse, there's no greater, one has no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends, that that verse was used as a way to manipulate young men, and at that time it was young men, um, into serving their country. Now, that's just a, a gross misuse of what Jesus meant by those words. When the spirit is taken out of that, then it becomes a work. It becomes uh, earning our salvation. It becomes something that Jesus never meant it to be. Jesus didn't have a political agenda. Jesus didn't have a nationalistic agenda. Jesus had a kingdom agenda. He had something way beyond what the powers of this earth could have imagined in saying those words. And when we take the spirit out of that, when we take the kingdom out of that, then those words become things that manipulate and that tear down, and that certainly is not anything that Jesus intended. All right, so in chapter 15, the words that we heard read today, there is so much happening. There's so much going on. I like to kind of sit back sometimes when I, when I read these things and, and just kind of imagine what was happening. I like to imagine what it was like for the disciples that night in the upper room. And I don't know, I, as I imagine this, I come to the conclusion that I would be a terrible disciple because I'd be nudging the person next to me saying, what is he talking about? <laughs> What, what, is, what does he even mean? You know, I would be that person, and then Jesus would know, and then I'd get called out, and it would be terrible. Anyway, so but I like to think about those kinds of things when I'm imagining the disciples in the room that night because they didn't know what they didn't know. They didn't know uh, what happens at the end of the story. They were living it, and they were trying to figure out what on earth Jesus was actually saying and, and what he actually meant by it. So the disciples were at a disadvantage in that way. They didn't have the benefit of history. We do. We have this word bound up here very lovely, and we can refer to it, and some of the text has red letters to help us out, and so it's really helpful. We have all of this at our fingertips all the time. The disciples didn't have that. But yet I think sometimes our worldview also ends up being a disadvantage to us in many ways because we have this worldview that everything should more or less make sense, like that there's a rational explanation for everything. We just kind of live in that space. It's not that maybe even it's a conscious thing for us, but, but we live in that space where things make sense and the sun rises in the same place and storms, we know they come in and they move out. The disciples didn't have that perspective, but we have this perspective that everything should more or less make sense. And so whether we mean to or not, we inadvertently extend that to the spiritual world because it's just part of who we are. It's just part of our worldview. And so with that framework in our brains, then we read things where Jesus says like we are his friends and that he's revealed to us what the Father gave to him to reveal. And we read things, Jesus say things like, you didn't choose me, I choose you. 
When we read those things with the particular worldview that we have, it's really tempting and it's really easy for us to hear that and to think, you know what, Jesus? Honestly, I kind of think you're holding out on me. I kind of think there's something else. And so we do that. We get, this, get it in our head that there's something else that he's holding out on us. There, there are things that we should be able to understand that we don't. And so then what we do, instead of abiding and remaining, instead of trusting and releasing, instead of that, we go off on our own thinking that we have to figure out whatever it is that we're missing. We do that all the time. We go out on our own and figure out what it is that we're missing. And we inadvertently sub a lot of things in that place. Sometimes it's our spouses. We expect our spouses to be something um, that they cannot be. Sometimes it's our work. We throw ourselves into our work. Sometimes it's our kids that we put in that place. Sometimes it's even our church. And when those things disappoint us, because they inevitably will, because we're trying to feel this fill, this spot in our heart where we are called to remain and abide, when we never figure out that what we're looking for is actually remaining and abiding, we try to fill it with all sorts of other stuff. And when those first order things don't work for us anymore, that first level, we realize they're going to disappoint us, they're not going to be everything that we need them to be, then it's very easy at that point to then trip into some other behaviors that become increasingly dangerous, trying to fill that spot where we were always intended to remain and abide. So we end up uh, doing things, we rack up all sorts of debt, spending money, maybe that fills the, the spot where we're supposed to remain and abide. Maybe it's pornography, maybe it's um, flirting with someone who is not your spouse. Who knows what it is? Maybe it's insisting that we have to have control of everything. We do those things because we're trying to fill that desire in us to remain and abide because we were created by our God who loves us with an unquenchable, undeniable thirst for Jesus. An unquenchable, undeniable thirst for Jesus. And there's nothing else that's ever going to fill that. And the main problem that we have with that undeniable desire to abide and remain in Jesus, the problem is if we're honest with ourselves, at the end of the day, we look at the cross and we are not completely convinced that Jesus' grace is sufficient for us. And when we end up being not completely convinced that Jesus' grace is is sufficient. It drives all sorts of behaviors. I think that how we view Jesus' death on the cross, I think that how we view this event is going to impact every single thing we do in our life. Every relationship we have, every decision that we make is going to be impacted by what we believe about what Jesus did for us on the cross. The cross, the cross is a scandal. The cross is scandalous. God himself is hanging there on the cross. And Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he who had no sin became sin so that we could become righteous. Think about that. Jesus, 100% righteous, the most pure ever, nothing not righteous about Jesus, goes to a cross and hangs there so that we, who are 100% sin, could be righteous. And he not only takes on our sin, but friends, he becomes 
our sin. For a period of time as he's hanging there on the cross, he becomes our sin. So when we read in Matthew where, where Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is sin. Jesus is sin at that moment in time. And so God, who is perfect, the perfect father who we know cannot be around sin, has no choice but to leave Jesus' sin on the cross so that we can be 100% righteous. And the awesome thing is, when Jesus goes into the ground, you know what he takes with him? He takes with him the sin. And when Jesus gets up, he leaves the sin there, and it's just Jesus. And sin and death and all of it are defeated and done once and for all. And now we, when we say, yes, Jesus, we now are 100% righteous. It is scandal. It is scandalous. What kind of a God does that? What kind of a God does that? And the answer is ours. <laughs> Our God does that. On the cross, we get to trade death for life. And we aren't made just a little bit righteous. We get to be 100% righteous. I think that uh, a lot of times we think about it like this. So we've got up here, got a whole continuum here, right? Sorry about the squeaky marker. I think it has to do with the fact of my height, and so the microphone's right by the marker, so I'm really sorry. Okay? 100% righteous. That's Jesus. That's us after the cross. Down here, 100% sinful. Okay? And like right here-ish is zero. Okay, so when we, we're, we're doing, we haven't turned our lives over to Jesus, right? We're just kind of doing what we want to do, and we're down here at like at 100% sin. Actually, we probably think we're only about negative 25% sin, but the truth of the matter is that's just a lie. We're actually down here at 100% sin before, before, uh, before Jesus gets a hold of us. And then, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, Jesus takes us from 100% sin when we say, yes, Jesus, I rest in you, I abide in you, Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. Jesus takes us all the way up to 100% righteous. But here's what I think. I think that we live our lives in such a way that when we think about this, we see ourselves at 100% sin. And when we give our lives over to Jesus and we say, yes, Jesus, we're going to follow you, I think that we believe we get to hear. And I think then we believe that this is on us. I think that more often than not, we believe, if we've got these hash marks up to 99, that we have to climb this ladder one percentage point as a time. We don't realize that the whole thing has been flipped and that we are made 100% righteous. Here's the thing. <clears throat> when the Spirit gets a hold of us, when the Spirit gets into our lives and reminds us and teaches us and encourages us, the advocate with the words that Jesus said, then we begin to realize that the Spirit is bouncing us back up, right? That we are 100% righteous. We're human beings, but we are 100% righteous human beings. And when we fall, the Spirit brings us back up. That's what I think. That's what I know. That's what I know happens. But we think we're climbing, don't we? And... Um, 
if you're willing to follow with me that this idea of belief drives our behavior, when we believe that we have to do that, then life is a lot more challenging and we start holding on to things a lot more tighter of this earth than we actually need to. But the thing is, right here, from, from uh, 99 to negative 99, this whole space right here, this is where the Spirit lives. This is where, when Jesus says, I, you didn't choose me, I chose you, that lives right here. When Jesus says, you are my friends, that lives right there. And that lifts us back up, back to 100% righteous. Have you ever jumped on a trampoline or watched people jump on a trampoline? Or my favorite, have you ever played that game where you're sitting on the trampoline and somebody is jumping on it and you're just sitting there and then they jump and you get to come back up, right? It's awesome. Have you ever seen people on a trampoline um, who are not smiling until they get hurt? Have you ever seen people on a trampoline who are not smiling? It is actually impossible to be bounced around on a trampoline and not have this sense of exuberance in your heart and your soul, right? So what happens when we open up our heart and our soul in this way to let the Spirit do what the Spirit has come to do, then all of a sudden, it becomes a whole lot easier for us to love sacrificially. Because when we realize that the Spirit is lifting us, when we realize that it's not our work, but it's the Spirit's work, then all of a sudden, we are able to have considerably more joy than when we were trying to do this on our own. If, when you're trying to do this on your own, you, you go up one, and then you take two steps back because you're trying to do it yourself, and without the Spirit, you can't do it. So it becomes a lot more difficult to have grace for anyone else, right? But when we realize that we are 100% righteous, not by our doing, but because of what Jesus has done for us, because the Spirit lifting us up, when we realize that, then we can't help but love sacrificially. When we realize that the Spirit is doing all of the work and it's actually not us, we cannot help but love the way that Jesus called us to love. Here's the thing, when we begin to do this, when we realize that the Spirit is lifting us back up and it's not on our own work, but it's a gift that we are receiving, when we really begin to realize that, then what happens is there are, beh are behaviors that are incompatible. There are behaviors that are incompatible when we really believe that the Spirit is bouncing us back up. When we believe that it's the Spirit bouncing us back up, all of a sudden then, it's a lot harder to hang on to anger, right? It's a lot harder to hang on to hurts and resentments because we realize that the person that we're angry with just doesn't have this figured out yet. And so they didn't hurt us because there's something naturally wrong with them or naturally wrong with us. They hurt us because they don't believe that they're a fully loved child of God either. They need to get this worked out for themselves. When we realize that we are a fully loved child of God, buoyed by grace, lifted up because of what Jesus has done, then all of a sudden there's no such thing as a harmless flirtation because we're loving sacrificially. We are being lifted up by grace that we know we didn't earn and we don't deserve, but yet we get to have it. When we are re realize that we are bounced up by grace, that we are 100% righteous because of what Jesus did for us, then all of a sudden, we can no longer hang on to control and insist that we have to be in charge of everything because we realize that what really matters, we're already not in control of because it's the Spirit doing the work the whole time. 
When we take the spirit out of these teachings, they become, they become things that we have to do because we have to, not things that the spirit gives us as a gift and empowers us to do because we have been made 100% righteous. Uh, in the scripture that we had today, it says, your grace is sufficient for me. And a song that we sang earlier, we said, Christ is enough. Everything I need is in you. Everything I need. And I think that sometimes, one way or another, our belief is not that that's true. <laughs> our belief is that that's really good. Our belief is that it gets us to here, but we believe one way or another that we have to do the rest of it ourselves. I'm asking you today, we're gonna sing Christ is enough again. We're gonna go back through that. Make that be your prayer. Say, Christ, you are enough. Christ, everything I need is in you. Everything I need is in you. Jesus, give me, thank you for what you did for me on the cross. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you sent your spirit who teaches and guides and who lifts me back up. Jesus, please open my heart and, and tell me, remind me, encourage me that that is enough.